This is David Patrick Kelly. You're listening to Zach and Dustin, $2 late fee. Get a nice cup of coffee and a really good sandwich with bread and brie and enjoy the show. Before there was IMDB.com, there was Zach and Dustin. You know those guys who think they know everything about a movie without having to go on the internet to look it up? That's us, but maybe only for the years 1981 through mid-1989. No, I'd say late 1978 through early 1992. (laughs) Either way, we know movies, and even more specifically, we know soundtracks from those movies. Yeah, this is $2 Late Fee with Zach and Dustin. This is the podcast where we pick a movie and soundtrack from our youth that we loved and see if it still holds up today. All in the spirit of positivity and togetherness. Thanks for listening. On to the show. Today we have on our show David Patrick Kelly, the man, the myth, the legend, all of the above. What a amazing person he is. I um, was really blown away by this interview, mostly I think for the fact that he was he's such a New York intellectual. Um, which I never realized how much I missed that. And just and just how um, well-rounded DP is, because he's DP to his friends, as he, yep. as he asked us to call him. So we're friends. And uh, yeah, let that sink in, audience. <laughs> no, um, you know, he is just so well, well-rounded in terms of music, in terms of theater, in terms of martial arts. Yeah. Meditation and action, if you will. So really, really cool. Really great guest. Yeah, really blown away by his level of research that he does on roles that an average actor might not put that time and energy into. And that's the reason why he stood the test of time with his performances. I knew him on the level of The Warriors, of course, and Commando, Dreamscape, 48 Hours, The Crow. He talks about all of those movies uh, a little bit. Some of them, you know, doesn't go into detail with some, but he goes into detail with quite a few of them. But I did not know his backstory of playing at CBGB's and his whole musical background and he goes into depth with that as well in fact you'll hear at the start of this episode and throughout several tracks that he recorded live at CBGB's back in the day he'll tell that whole story and you can get that CD from his website there'll be links in our show notes as well so go check that out Rip Van Boyman is the name of the CD fantastic yeah it's good stuff it's very it's very of a specific era What a talented guy. And to be able to share all his stories with us in a very limited amount of time. So if you want more of DP, you will get more if you sign up to our Patreon because we did a cool $2, six questions with him. And folks, the Patreon has never been more simplified than it is right now. Um, You can just sign up. We have just a ton of stuff. We have celebrity uh, questions, special questions. They're your questions. All of those questions come from you guys. You, you, you write them, we ask them, they answer them. Uh, we also have a very interactive uh, a trivia, live trivia show that is now a monthly thing. So for just five bucks a month, you can get in on the, on the interactive party that is the $2 late fee Patreon. And remember, it's a great way to show support for the show and to keep our show going as strong as it is right now because the more we're supported by you guys, the more we can do for you guys. Yeah, that's true. I should be like, we're getting just, we're, we're, we're weak. We're, you know, the show is, is, <sighs> is fall. It's failing. And if you don't help it guys, it's like, uh, like Tinkerbell, you got to believe in the show. <laughs> um, anything from the never ending story that follows that kind of, you know, you got to believe Bastion. You got to say our name. You got to say our, yell our name. Patreon. Yeah. Yell our names. Just make sure you do it in an appropriate way. Out the window to all your neighbors. Don't explain what you're doing. Just shout our names. Shout it out loud like the Kiss song. To everybody who's been here since the day one to now, thank you all. It really, really is appreciated. Yes, indeedy. So we're, we're nearing the end of our uh, season three. This is our penultimate episode. So that's very exciting. After this week, we've got your favorite cast members from A Christmas Story and A Christmas Story Christmas, the sequel out now. Scott Farkas, Zach Ward, and Scotty Schwartz, who plays Flick. He got his tongue stuck to the flagpole. You guys remember it. 
You've seen it. It runs 24 hours every Christmas. Those gentlemen will be our finale. Wow, what a way to go out with David Badger Kelly and our Christmas Story reunion. And then just to remind you guys, we're going on a little hiatus in January. There will be some fun things sprinkled in there, so stay tuned. But then we'll be back with our season four in the beginning of February. Yeah, I, I just want to reiterate, like you probably won't miss us. I mean, because we're, we're still going to be present, but we're not going to be on our regularly scheduled programming. Yeah, so just kind of stay tuned for updates on all the ways we communicate with you. Yeah, we love you. And you're going to love David Patrick Kelly. Amen. Come out to play. I apologize. I don't know you, but I love you all. The pain of loving makes me realize the chances don't seem worth the fall. But I catch myself before the end. I try once more. To begin again, I apologize. This face looks hard, but it's just painted on. Sir, thank you so much for joining us on your uh, on your day off um, from Into the Woods. We, this is fantastic for us. Really appreciate your time. It's yeah. great for me. Annie uh, recommends you highly. Annie Golden, and uh, what's good for her is good for me. We love Annie. Yeah, Annie, um, you know, my brother co-wrote a musical for Annie. For Bro Broadway Bounty Hunter was written by my brother and a guy named Joe Iconis and Jason Sweet Tooth Williams. I don't know if you know those guys, but so they they wrote that musical for Annie, and it was it was phenomenal. It was uh, it, it didn't get a, get a very long run, unfortunately, but um, you know, seventies kind of like black exploitation. She's hunting, you know, she's, she's a bounty hunter. It, it, it was, it was phenomenal. It was so funny. Ahead of its time. <laughs> yeah, really? really now sure. Joe wrote uh, Memphis, didn't he? Did he write Memphis? Joe Iconis? Joe Iconis wrote, um, be more chill was Joe and uh, love and hate nation things to ruin. He does a lot of stuff. I got to say, Mr. Kelly, before we came on the air, Dustin and I were talking and I said, uh, you know, on a short list of like people that I've always wanted to have on the show, you're at the top of the list. Oh, that's your really kind of you. In your film, uh, your voice as a singer and uh, as a musician oh, wow. and great. as a just an all around artist is truly admirable. Uh, we're, we're big fans. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I I think you can see some of my guitars in the background there. Right? Sure can. Yeah. Sure can. I, uh, yeah, these are, I'm working on a, a play. I like plays with me. That, thank you. That's very generous, kind comments of you. And please call me DP. That's what, that's the going thing these days. Uh, you got it. I was one of the early three name actors, you know, so uh, I had to find some way to codify. So DP is, is uh, fine. Thank DPK. you. But, but, uh, these guitars now, this is from the great, I think it's a Midwest. It's out of Detroit or Toronto, something. Uh, uh, Eastwood guitars. They make repros of wacky um, different kinds of guitars, which are excellent guitars. You know? Nice. So, How long have you played? Well, I, I, my mother gave me my mandolin in 1964 as a legend. And this company name, Kept Window, I don't know if you can see that or not. A little Let bit, me see. yeah. yeah kept window yeah uh so she we would walk to church and uh and i just saw this mandolin in the pied piper music store and i didn't say you know i want that or anything we were we were quite you know not to sing the blues but we didn't have any money you know seven kids and uh post-world mm. war ii mm. and but one day uh, on saint patrick's day 1964 she presented me with this mandolin and I said, mom, how'd you do that? We don't have any money. You know, she said, I just prayed that it would still be in the window and she, and I kept it in the window, you know? So that's the name of the company. Oh, that, amazing. Where I do, you know, my music publishing and 
hopefully we'll produce some plays and things. And my whole career, I've written plays with music. You know, I like uh, Shakespeare and Brecht and they have plays with music rather than full-blown musicals, you know. And Annie and I and other people have tried to bring the spirit of rock and roll. Annie Golden, she and I shared a bill at CBGB's in 1975 with the Talking Heads and Blondie and the Ramones and everybody in 1975 did not have recording contracts. Hilly Crystal, this eccentric dude, had this kind of Hell's Angel drinking bar down on the Bowery. And uh, and he, he the name CBGB stands for Country Bluegrass and Blues, which was his thing, you know, older guy, uh, Air Force paratroop or something like that. But he decided to, to let bands, more and more bands said, can we play here? And he said, okay, as long as you play only your own music, only original music. So okay. he started that scene and it was, you wow. know, it's up there with the Cavern Club and all these mm-hmm. other places, you know, as a place where people knew that they had to be creative, super creative to be in there, you know. So we were on that, you know, but then we, you know, went into acting, you know, I've always been concentrating on acting all my life, you know, but always had the parallel music with it, you know. So playing the mandolin, I taught myself and and played it as a rhythm guitar in my high school band, the Zupan okay. Band <laughs> in Detroit, Michigan. We're a well-known dance band. We opened for Bob Seger when he was a local hero. I'd go up to him because he had only one local hit at that time, you know, in the 60s, mid-60s, uh, heavy music. Don't you ever listen to the radio? Yeah. And, uh, and uh, I said, how do you sing like that? And he said, man, you just got to sing as hard as you can. You know, I said, wow. <laughs> Some years old, you know. <laughs> as hard as you can. Hard as you can. Yeah. He still does. He still does. I mean, he's going strong. Yeah. He's he's selling out venues across the country still. I don't know if he's still touring, but he was. a. a no, he retired doing. finally. My, you know, um, Meatloaf and I were in Hair. We both started at the same time. Yeah. Hair in Detroit. You know, we were both. I think he's a couple, he was a couple of years old, and God bless him. Uh, I just saw him. We did a photo session for the New York Times about four years ago, me and uh, me. Rest in peace. And uh, it was wow. all the people who were in hair and started in hair, you know. Uh, and, wow. Uh, wow. And it was great to see him. I hadn't seen him in like 35 years or something like that, you know. And, uh, you know, um, so we started in that, and there was another lady named Stoney, and she sang back up for, for, for Bob Seeger from all his whole career, you know, but no she kidding. was in the hair, hair with us as well. Yeah. Uh, Sean Murphy is her name. And, uh, but she was known as Stony back in the, in the seventies when we started in hair, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so she told me, yeah, that he just retired. He, they did their final tour and he lives somewhere near Lake, Lake Orion. How do you say it? We say it different ways. Lake Orion, Lake Orion. Mm-hmm. I think that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was, uh, I, he's one of the few guys that hung up his, you know, hung up his, uh, touring keys and basically uh you know called it a day versus calling a a, a tour a farewell tour and then touring the following year so. yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. the endless tour yeah. yeah right um okay so i i mean we obviously want to talk about your acting career but you had posted a, a, a video on instagram of you and annie performing one of the songs that you sang at cbgb's in 1975 and I had shared it on our page, our personal Instagram page, and, and Dustin and I were communicating back and forth. I said, this is beautiful. Like the <laughs> harmony, just the sound. I could listen to that and watch it all day. It was really, oh, really thank fantastic. You. Yeah, we got a lot of feedback for that. Uh, yeah, what happened was, I don't know, I think Andy and I didn't feel like they were paying enough attention to us, so I got permission to go up on the roof there. Uh, you know, as seniors, there's some ageism-involved fellows. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, you'll find out, you know, but uh, you Ugh. just keep kicking yeah. ass and everything. It works out. We're and uh, so uh, I went back to Annie's, you know, and it was so fast and furious CBGB's that original scene that I hadn't really listened much to her first record that she did with her band, The Shirts. And it's so interesting. It's so interesting of its time. You know, there's the bands, you know, television, Patti Smith you know, uh, the Ramones, uh, yep. but they they really had something going on 
with Annie and their harmonies and their eccentric uh, time signatures and stuff. And so it translated, it came full circle to that country bluegrass and blues CBGB's mm. logo, you know, for me yep. to take the mandolin and break down her song. And we did a, a Andy was very funny about it. You know, they, they call them mashups now. The kids call them mashups. <laughs> yeah. She said, yeah. you know, in her inimitable accent, she said, we used to call them medleys, medleys. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. we we did that. And I loved singing her song with her. And that's the first time we've ever sung together before. Oh, you know? really? And, and so we didn't know. So we have to, we're, we're working on another one right now for for oh how cool for a similar thing but it was fun to get up on the roof there at the at the St. James Theater and uh, publicize the fact that we're in uh, into the woods at the same time uh cuz David Byrne our old uh, uh CBGB's uh, bill mate uh had just finished up not too long ago with uh American Utopia there that's right know, so that's right the rock yeah. goes on Look, I, I was thinking, move over Robert Plant and Allison Krauss. You guys gotta, you know. <laughs> really? There's room really? for there's room for everybody. interesting i finally put out an album only in 2008 you know and it was somebody holding up a cassette recorder at cbgb's you know and i just got somebody to remix it and put it out because the mission was there were other people besides the people who got so incredibly famous with that you know yeah. there, were, there was other interesting stuff going on you know i mean i had i hadn't listened to the velvet underground but i had a brilliant electric violist uh in in my band, I played guitar and cool. bass and drums, and it was very simple, uh, but it was a different sound, you know? And then after that, I saw Bob Dylan for his Rolling Thunder, he picked up a violin, and David Byrne had somebody come in for his violin, you know? So just to see these influences, there was a, you know, a band called Orchestra Luna that were very, and that was Carla DeVito, who, you know, she took over and went on tour with Meat Love after yeah. that, you know? there was. You know, uh, the Dead Boys, there was, um, you know, on and on, really, it was an interesting scene was the point of putting out the record and the show. You can even hear people playing pool in the background on some of the tapes, you know, as we're playing oh, wow. Uh, wow. in 1975. I've been around the world and I've been twice champion. Clearing the tables we talked into the night about women and the music we like. How do you pass your time? What lost moments will you find? Sometimes life seems like a cheap crime, don't it? But sometimes, oh, it seems like a wind chime. It seems just like a wind chime. And I feel like a stupid Cupid running home with a melody. And this windfall is gonna be the life of me. Yes, it's gonna be the life of me. Oh, it's gonna be the life of me. There was a lot going on there, and Annie's was, you know, they they were really moving, you know, be, 
before she went totally into, into acting, you know. But there was the usual stuff with management and all that kind of stuff that happens with bands. It's, it's such a, I don't know, it's a rough, rough business, man. So I really appreciate anybody who, you know, transcends and achieves stuff. Well, I mean, you you just a, only a handful of years later are are starring in what I consider my Star Wars, my my holy grail of movies, The Warriors. It is <laughs> I, I can Dustin knows this. I've seen it well over fifty times. Favorite uh, film I, of all time. It yeah. brought together a, one of my closest friends and I, Terry Chapman. He and I were connected through that movie because we loved it so much, and no one knew what it was at the time in our circle. Your performance is Luther. Just you just tore the house down and to to this day to this day holds up from beginning to end i'm having a good time let's go oh that's really great that you say that we worked really hard on it i was relatively old when i, I was 27 you know okay. most of yeah. the people were like earlier 22 or 24 some some of the actors you know and so I'd had a, a wealth of experience, you know, before that, with including the CBGB's gig, doing all kinds of play. Done check. I did Chekhov at the Brooklyn Academy of Music with Margaret Hamilton. You know who that is? She's yeah. the Wicked Witch of the West and yeah. the Wizard of Oz. You know, Chekhov with Ellen Burstyn and and uh, wrote mm -hmm. the music for that. We did the incidental music in that. You know. Wow. And um, uh, and interestingly enough, they had a screening. Uh, I don't know what year it is, 40 year anniversary at what is now the BAM Rose Cinema, the Brooklyn Academy of Music Rose Cinema, which is a great art house at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Hmm. And that used to be a theater. That's where we did uh, Three Sisters with Margaret Hamilton, you know. Wow. So I got to look at that and they had their archives they had the books and they said yes look here they <laughs> so, you know same theater and they had me speak at the screening of the warriors there so yeah it's you know it was really good fortune to be you know uh, be part of that you know walter hill's third film as a director i think something like that right and um just the elements that were in it that keep unfolding you know, I always say what I like in music or art is a kind of encyclopedic, encyclopedic, I know you say that word, uh, thing, like something that has layers in it, you know, something has references other things and gives you a richness, you know. And so there, there's something about that movie, you know, of course, we were dealing with the fact that there was real hardcore actor studio method gangster movies coming just before us you know mm. taxi driver and and the godfather and and mean streets and all these things so to have something that was more of a roger corman attitude who's a brilliant guy and in turn you know was in the godfather himself you know um yeah you know this is the style that larry gordon and walter hill had for this it was going to be a western walter calls his movies westerns all the time and when you go, I did, I did not read the original novel by Saul Urich until well after, just rather recently. Mm, okay. And to see the influences that he had going into it. You know, he has John Milton, he has Paradise Lost, which is the pandemonium section in Paradise Lost, where all the demons come together, you know, after they've revolted from God, you know, and they're going to, you know, I don't know what they're going to do, but they're, you know, they, they, they meet together, you know, they're going to be demons, you know. And um, then there was another book that influenced Saul Europe. There was John Milton. There was a book called The Water Margin, which was Mao Zedong's favorite book. Mm. And it was about all the Chinese outlaws and mountain rebels who were going to come together and uh, take over, mm. you know. So that was another element. So all these elements that are in there, plus the Greek, you know, the story of the Anabasis by Xenophon right. is in there. And, uh, and then this Western that Walter Hill was going to do, you know, and to have all that layered in there is really cool. And it's like his idea, which is the classic comic strips, you know, the classic comic books, which I read myself, you know, uh, uh, that was his thing back in the, in the fifties and sixties, he had these things, which is a comic book telling of, the Odyssey, for instance, or I don't, I don't know, uh, different stories uh, yeah. in comic book form. 
And so that's why he finally put out that director's cut where he put it cut in different uh, comic book panels. That was his original plan, but they didn't have the money for it back then. But it was really, really great. And to get into it in that way and, and do our best with, with that material and show New York, it's always listed as made in New York, you know, mm. interesting study uh, of what was going on in New York because it was a crazy time. The 70s in New York was was violent and crazy. And, you know, the famous headline in the New York Post, uh, Gerald Ford says to New York, drop dead. You know, they said mm. you know, they, they were going to get any federal help or anything that they were going through and stuff like that, you know. And um, so it was a crazy time. And that's when I was working in these clubs, you know, and and I was, uh, I, I, it, it sounds too harsh to call it homeless, but I was, you know, there, there was a guy who robbed me, lived right next to me. That's nice he, of him. Very neighborly. He, yeah, in my apartment when I was making it. Wow. But I have to say, I looked really out of time. You know, this was 1978. And because of the show that Walter and the producers had seen me in, Working, which was created by Stephen Schwartz from Studs Terkel's book, uh, interviews with people talking about uh, what wow. they do all day. And he, uh, Stephen Schwartz, who wrote Wicked and Godspell and Pippin and all these shows uh, had this idea to do a version of working where five actors or, or 10 actors who can do all these different things. And I, I played guitar in that and I sang, we sang James Taylor's songs in that, you know, and uh, uh, that he wrote specifically for the show, you know, and this was just before I did the Warriors. That's where I was discovered was on Broadway uh, in working uh, by Walter Hill and Larry Gordon. They came to see that, you know, and uh, uh, so my hair, Stephen Schwartz, because of my character, who was an insane copy boy. He was a guy, you know, who seemed like a hippie, but he was really violent underneath. Mm. And it was uh, uh, odd to say, but it was a hilarious monologue, you know, by this guy just uh, uh, talking about what he wanted to do to all his bosses. And, and so they saw that and said, you know, well, this seems right for Luther, the villain in our piece. And uh, and that's how it came about, you know, but my hair was so long and out of time because this was the punk rock time. This was John Travolta and Saturday Night Fever time, you know, yeah. that was that styled look. It wasn't this long, long hair, but it was, it, it was interesting because it made me look different than anybody else in the movie, you know, and uh, really? it seemed to seem to work out. Well, yeah, you stood out and that's the whole point, right? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, he just, it just looked like a craze kind of Manson-esque kind of, yeah. you know, person, you know, and uh, yeah, made it distinctive. So, uh, you know, you, you could remember what was going on. Yeah, Luther as a character yeah. is not like physically imposing by any means, but he is completely unhinged and unpredictable. And you're like transfixed because you don't know what's even motivating this guy most of the time as a viewer. Yeah, you know, the the complexity of of why he did that and and what it's all about, you know, I didn't overanalyze it, you know, cause it's good not to do that. I didn't even read, you know, Saul Urich's book during yeah. it because I just wanted to stick to Walter's script, yeah. which was so different and try to bring as much life as you could to that, you know, but you know, the world I was living in, which was a, which was a danger. You had to be street smart. You know, I lived in a tiny apartment, $150 a month, uh, down on spring street. Uh, and, uh, and this kind of semi gangster guy lived next to me, you know, and, and you just had to watch your step, you know, you had to know, you know, and so he, or somebody he sent, you know, came in through my window and emptied out my apartment, stuff oh, like that, you know, but he was the guy who would, you know, I'd see him, on the street and I'd say, hey, hey, how you doing? He'd say, Dave, 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 you know? So he became the basis for the original, oh, man. you know? I said, you know, that's some crazy stuff. So I'm gonna use that, you know, it, being my, doing my good actor homework, you know, you're, you gotta be like an anthropologist and pick it up. You know, you can't take it from other movies. You gotta take it from real life, you know? Totally. So. That's incredible. And you probably don't get past that as neighbors, right? 
once uh, well i was gone by that i mean that that was the message you know they didn't <laughs> nail nail a fish on my door or anything like that but it, you know that that was the message you know it's time to go you know because they he actually the good old wow. landlord there had helped me on a number of occasions, you know, he was very sympathetic to me being an actor, you know, and all trying to do these different things, you know, and practicing music up there. But uh, they must have had somebody who was going to pay more or something like that, you know, and, mm. you know, uh, and it's oddly enough, it's still there, that that building and that really? down at a, at a Ralph Lauren store and these two sales guys, you know, I said, I used to live here in spring. They said, where? I said, you know, told him the address they said that's where we live you know i said we live in your apartment <laughs> they live these two guys you want your fish back right i'm sure the rent is similar yeah. <laughs> they pay like three grand or something oh, like that. Sure. you know well I, you know and, and i'm thinking about unfortunately <laughs> you having your place robbed and then asking uh, Dave and he would say something like, well, I just like doing things like that. Cause your character <laughs> says that at the end, right? You say that to, <laughs> yeah. to Swan, Michael Beck, when he asks you, why'd you do it? Why'd you do it? Why'd you waste Cyrus? No reason. I just like doing things like that. <laughs> Let's do it. Me and you. One on one? You're crazy. You're dead. All of you. And you know it. You're dead. Swan! And I always thought about like this crazed guy unfortunately we know way too many people like that nowadays who just yeah. do things yeah. on motive like for for no motivation and just so chaos. It's, yeah. it's chaos uh you know some people look at it as a time capsule movie there's so many themes i think that still can hold up today and and your character being this this like dustin said not imposing physically but this idea of man manipulating people to do what you want them to do and it turns into an interesting discussion, especially with what's going on today. Yeah, I think um, that kind of uh, hypnotic effect it said, and I honestly yes. do not know where that came from. Walter just asked me to make something up, you know, that chant thing at the end. But, and I sort of do, I mean, I've been theorizing about it for a long time, but I was an off off-Broadway actor and working at CBGB's. And so some of that is, is the crazy stuff. You can hear a song, there's a song called, uh, I won't remember, um, Fly Your Kite on my uh, CD, live CD from that. And you can hear a little bit of elements of that in there, mm -hmm. you know, cause people were trying to do creative thing, you know, trying to do different things, you know, and, um, uh, so it comes from that and the off off broadway stuff that was going on and you know there, there there is something about that 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 the emotion of it you know i think i i was picking up on the emotion and the anger of being homeless and being you know fighting against the this power structure even even if it was a like a gangster power structure or a yeah. a, a you know the governmental power structure around you know there's this thing that people identify with um, that's irrational you know that right. that goes beyond it it's just a fierce fierce anger and we see it so much now so much you know and um you know they they can't articulate it they'll make up any reason in the world you know to do it but it's just this feeling because of you know the the situations you know the conditions that we live in the conditions people find themselves in you know between a rock and a hard place mm -hmm. and uh trying to do something to alleviate that, you know? And, uh, you know, I, I work and try to do artwork and, and, you know, volunteer work and political work to try to help people find avenues to deal with that, you know, to mm -hmm. be able to articulate something that they haven't been able to articulate. And I think going back to what you're saying, not being physically imposing, but it's still terrorized, you know? Oh, I, totally. I, yeah. couldn't, I couldn't go out for two years because I'd go to a club 
and people would want to fight me. Oh, you know, because you said, you know, I couldn't go a couple of years. I couldn't, wouldn't (laughs) go out because people would be angry back at me, you know, saying like, I'm not afraid of you. You know, they wouldn't, wouldn't, they wouldn't say that, but that would be the feeling. I said, you don't scare me. Yeah. You know, and, uh, (laughs) but apparently it did, you know, apparently it, it tweaked them when they were sitting there in the, in the, in the, uh, in the movie theater, whatever it was, I I didn't. I was an actor. It's changed a lot over my career, but in the early days, I wouldn't go see the movies it did. There's a thing of not wanting to make yourself self-conscious, you know. Yeah, yep. yeah. So I I wouldn't go see it. I didn't see it for many years, and finally I sat at the what was it? The um, I can't remember some art movie place in in New York and saw it, and the way that it built up to that chant is fantastic it just builds up into this quiet thing where the hearse is coming you know and i i finally got it i finally got why is this such a you know i felt it in the moment when we made it you know i said that's something you know and and walter knew it too you know the guys in the rogues gang didn't quite get it at the time (laughs) but it didn't take very long to do, you know, we only did a couple takes, you know, and, and Walter said, bring the bottles up slowly, you know, and, uh, and then we just did it. Warriors come out to play. Warriors come out to play. Warriors come out to play. I was a little bit surprised that they kept it in, but I, I kind of had a feeling that it worked. Even just yeah. when we were making it, I, I kind of knew that it worked. And that's it. And it was so odd and so, you know, um, weird that it would uh, put us in the right place to finish up the movie there. I mean, that more than anything has, has lasted, you know, beyond. I, they use it at, at Golden State Warriors games <laughs> to get people riled up. I've never heard that, but there's a, there's a wonderful TV producer who, uh, uh, I have a beautiful daughter. Uh, she's 13, and she went to school with uh, a friend of ours whose kids are the same age. And they, and he was a Marine. Uh, he's a TV producer for NBC now. And he said when he was at I don't know where it was uh, Paris Island training, and they'd have they'd play sort of like paintball exercises yeah. to fight each other, and you'd hear people chanting it from over the hill. He told me, you know, <laughs> from the other Absolutely. side of the hill. They'd hear people chanting it, you know. So that was the funniest one I ever heard. So you just you just picked up these these three bottles that you had? Well, no, I found them. You know, uh, it was just nothing. We just in the in the in the script you could read uh, it. The, the hearse rolls up, they get ready, and they go out and fight. But Walter said, "I want something more," you know. And mm-hmm. uh, so we just thought about it. And out there at Coney Island at the time, they'd sell these little tiny beer bottles and uh little bottles of beer and and at first i picked up pigeons you know uh joel weiss had to remind me of this the guy who plays cropsy my second in command great guy and uh because they would poison the pigeons at coney island because they're a big nuisance for the shopkeepers and everything like that and so there were a number of them standing around i i was going to hold up three dead pigeons you know and uh said no that's not quite it so I, I guess, you know, it comes from Liz Suedos. I don't know if you know that name. She was a, a wonderful composer. She wrote a play that won some Tony's, I think, Runaways, uh, which was on Broadway. Uh, she's gone now, sadly. But uh, she was the big composer. Um, when Julie Tamer, who's the Lion King lady in a number of films, you know, uh, um, she started with Liz Suedos, you know, she just did little puppets with Liz Suedos at La Mama, Cafe La Mama, great uh, uh, off-Broadway off theater in New York. Yeah. And uh, and Liz, you know, was always beating pots and pans or having, you know, people ring little bells and stuff like that. So I think it came from that kind of experimental headset, you know, uh, that I went out there and said, and uh and and also give it up to 
to Brando, you know, that great scene in, uh, uh, on the waterfront where uh, even Reeves Saint's glove uh, falls and he just picks it up and he puts it on his hand. And, and, you know, that kind of improvisation inspired me, you know, uh, Chaplin and, uh, you know, my great teacher, Marcel Marceau, you know, the kind mm -hmm. of things of making something from nothing, you know, yeah. you just, you have to uh, invent in the moment and, and uh, make a gesture that's, you know, uh, uh, meaningful, you know, and, uh, and, so that's how it came came about. And, you know, it, Walter said to me, you know, he'd see me in working where I was singing uh, James Taylor's, you know, uh, mill work ain't easy, mill work ain't hard. And and uh, he said, I want you to sing him something. I said, oh, man, what am I, you know, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't want to do some lyrical thing. You know, I said, you know, and uh, that's the way it came up. Wow. So he, you know, that he stuck with it and I admire him for doing that, you know, and uh, they had a screening not too long ago at, at uh, I think Tarantino owns it now, some theater in LA. Oh, um, New Beverly. Is that his? Yep. Ed, Edgar Wright uh, yep. held the screening and he had Walter and Larry Gordon and Joel Weiss was there. I couldn't go, I was doing a play here in New York, but um, you know, uh, he talked about it there, you know, and how you had Walter imitating me saying that, which you never, you know, <laughs> which was Edgar Wright said, it's one of the greatest moments of my life. <laughs> right. <laughs> to yeah. hear Walter Hill imitate that. Line. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you mentioned how you improv that scene essentially and, and it, and stayed with us, right. All these decades later. And I think about personally, and Dustin and I were talking about this too. So many of your performances stay with, you over the years, over the decades. Uh, you know, our show focuses heavily on the 80s and the early 90s. That's kind of our pocket. But if we went up and down your filmography, we could say that about every performance you've been in, you know, from Dreamscape and <laughs> Commando. And sometimes these smaller performances have a huge impact overall. And that's the character that stands out the most. Your performances stand the test of time. They really do. Well, you're very kind. Uh, I hope so. I, I I always told young actors when I'm talking someplace, people invite me from time to time to speak. And they say, you know, you have to work on it as if the whole movie is about you. Mm. You know, you, you got to work on it that way. But at the same time, you have to know what it's about, you know, and this gets mm -hmm. into acting theory. Uh, you know, Stanislavski's three famous books, you know, uh, uh, there's one called building a character and in there he uses, he, he doesn't say it, but I've, it translates that it's a legal term, sine qua non, which means without which no, without which no. Mm. And, and it's sort of the tent pole of everything you do. So you have to figure out what the story is and then how you can help that story happen. Mm. And the story is generally the protagonist doing something. It's not a theme. It's not man's inhumanity to man. It's not the political lens. It's somebody doing something and how you can fit into helping that happen. You know, mm. yeah. uh, Arnold wants to get his daughter back. You know, uh, the warriors want to get home, you know, and how you can fill that in. And it becomes like a painting, you know, it becomes like a painting and you see your favorite paintings you know, if there's a group painting and that one little character up in the corner there was not there or turned a different way, the whole thing would be ruined. So if you can make it happen and you can make it, you know, help the painting and complete the picture, then you're doing your job, you know, and uh, and it makes it more fun, too. It's been endlessly enriching. I've, the overlapping of different research that I've done has been fantastic i'm doing into the woods now yeah. and i'm using stuff that i learned in chinese theater school when i was over <laughs> in beijing you know and uh you know it, it just makes for a rich life you know and plus you know all that studying you know i told you all the the books that are involved in the warriors for me you know the, yeah the great water margin which i urge you to read it's this stuff that you see in crouching tiger mm -hmm. uh 
Hidden and, Dragon? Yeah, Crouching Tiger, Hidden oh. Dragon. You see it in, if you know Wong Kar Wai's movie, The Grandmaster, the yeah. great, the greatest martial arts movie I've ever seen, you know. Terrific. Um, all these things are in these Chinese classic literature, you know. And, you know, to take it back, one of my great heroes is a French actor, Antonin Artaud. Now, Artaud was big influence on my generation of actors. You know, uh, he was a friend of the Surrealists. He was a poet and a wonderful actor. If you've ever seen Carl Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc with Marie Falconetti, and if you haven't, I urge you to see it. And, uh, and Abel Gantz's Napoleon, you know, which is this amazing epic that Coppola brought back. Um, Artaud is in those, and he's great. He plays the friendly monk to Joan of Arc, Saint, Saint Joan, and, uh, and, but he wrote these theories of what should be theater. And one of them was Asian theater techniques, one of the, one of the ideas. And so I've always I've studied martial arts for many years. I started quite late. I started when I was 35 years old, you know, and then spent 20 years uh, in, in martial arts, you know, got a couple of black belts in, in traditional karate. Oh, wow. And, uh, and it really, you know, amazingly enriches your life, you know? And uh, yeah, when we were working on The Crow, I, I told Brandon, you know, that I was going, I was just about to go for my first black belt, you know, and that was 93, so I was 42 or something oh, like that, wow. you know? And I uh, said, oh, I'll train with you. You know, we were trying to keep distance, you know, uh, uh, actor discipline yeah. uh, on there, but a wonderful guy, wonderful, wonderful fellow. And uh, so he was gonna train with me, uh, but uh, the the tragedy ensued. Oh, man. You know, oh, that's a bummer. But um, incredible tragedy. But uh, uh, we did that one one piece of art and, and kept his legacy alive. You know, and uh, yeah, I spoke to him first day on the set. I said, "Your father was a, a big influence on me." He said, "Yeah, me too." You know, and uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, so uh, it was great to be a part of that because you know, part of acting and artwork is to, to do stuff from where you are. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'd never done anything from Detroit. And even though that's a comic book fictional Detroit, yeah. you know, uh, uh, that's one of the reasons I signed on to The Crow, you know. Really? Yeah. And I was touched by his story too. You know, yeah. I was not so thrilled with the original artwork or everything in the, in the comic book, but I, 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 was, I was touched by the true life story of James O'Barr you know, and his tragic loss of his girlfriend and going through this horrible emotion. And I thought the, the emotion was translated in in the comic book. So I said, well, that'd be a good thing to, to try to help tell that story, you know. Yeah, it's a fairly faithful adaptation from his graphic novel. You mentioned something, you were influenced by Bruce Lee, and it makes me think of your role in Dreamscape as <laughs> Tommy. The know, nunchucks and the... Yeah. <laughs> You know, you have an interaction with, with Dennis Quaid's character. Who the hell are you? Tommy Ray Blackman. Oh, yeah. Paul told me about you. You're the Neil Armstrong of dream waking, right? Right. Just like walking on the moon. Yeah? Want to go down and have a couple of beers? Why? I don't know. I just thought maybe... I know what you want. I knew it the second I saw you. You want my secrets? No, I don't. I just want some advice. I don't give advice. I'm in this with me, myself, and I. That's it. Sorry. Novotny gives me free reign, no way? Must be your sparkling personality. Because I'm the only guy, Alex. I'm the only guy who can do it. What about Edward Sims? They had to carry him away in a basket. Yeah, well. Navani seems to think I'll be able to do it. I'll order your basket. And I'm wondering, like, the, the Bruce Lee connection there, mm. already kind of being the, the king shit, so to speak, of, of, the, of the lab, uh, and then suddenly this new guy comes in. I think that, that competition was important, but I, I don't know if he really considered it. He just knew that he was better in a way, Tommy yeah. Ray. He kind of knew that he was better. 
Dennis's character was able to to fight against it, but he he I, I think he probably saw something there that he was looking for for camaraderie in one way or another, you know, to some kind of somebody to recognize him. But um, that was a that was a great shoot, you know. I I, uh, I did watch all those movies, you know, because this gets into maybe something that you're interested in for your show, the '80s action movies. Because there used to be what I called that I that I learned at Wayne State University a bifurcation between art movies and action movies in the seventies and eighties. It yeah. came together in Tarantino and all these later folks, you know. But before that, one side of the street was Clint Eastwood and Charles Bronson. The other side was Bergman and you know Fellini and yeah. stuff. Mm. <laughs> and you never. You know, you had to go past, and and at one point in the seventies, I think that's when it started. Maybe the eighties, uh, they had all the action. You know, the Chinese action movies. You know, oh, just yeah. Fury, and uh, you know all these great movies. And so I was, I was part of that, and I watched that well before doing doing Dreamscape. And so that had a truth to it too. You know, doing all those. I did not know nunchucks. You know, but and I had a great teacher for that. You know, uh, um, Jeff Imada is yes. a brilliant. He was a student of a sort of classmate and friend of Bruce Lee, Jeff Imada. So he choreographed all that for me uh, in Dreamscape, uh, the great nun Chuck scene. And they were going to have a stunt guy do it before I trained so hard mm. for it and, and put a ninja mask on him, yep. you know. Yep. And and then when I was going to do it, they said, he said he wanted me to wear the ninja mask too. And I said, you won't right. let, let him see it's me. You know? <laughs> yeah, it works right? so hard. And uh, so he, he yeah. agreed to that. Joe, Joe Rubin, let me do it that way and design the chucks with the, you know, the spikes on the end of them and stuff like that. But then I found out that Bruce Lee in, in uh, Last of the Dragon, uh, used rubber lightweight nunchucks for his, you know, just for smart reasons. Right. Yeah. I, fo- I found out. That's why. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I, very smart. mine were wooden. And so my elbows were black uh, and blue oh. from learning <laughs> that and going over and over, you know, I was really hurting after training so hard uh-huh. with Jeff, you know, but he did great choreography. It was really cool. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, a scene that I really love to this day, you know, and um, likewise, yeah. you know, Dreamscape was also cool because it was one of the last pre CGI movies, you know, right. It had mm. the old Ray Harryhausen type of animation in it, yep. you know, and we had to sculpt those, uh, those uh, snake transformations uh, piece by piece, you know? Oh yeah. And so, uh, that was big fun for me, you know, to, uh, being a mime and a mask maker and all that kind of stuff to go to use mm. something that was so, you know, theatrical and, uh, you know, have it work in that, that wonderful way, you know. Were you in the chair for a long time with that, putting that makeup on for the, the snake head? Uh, the, yeah, that one took quite a while. Yeah. I, bet. Uh, I can't remember that. Craig Reardon, is that the guy's name? He did the special effects on that. And there was a wonderful Japanese assistant lady that did the mask work in there. So doing all the body casting and everything else took quite a long time, you know, but, uh, but uh, I love that. You know, I always now rate different movies, you know, for, uh, you know, like uh, what was the one that Tim Curry did legend, something like yeah, that. Legend, where yeah. Had great uh, mask. The making devil and, and the, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, so people who can do that, I, no, I, you know, I like to, to judge those uh, those scenes, their mask work, how their mask work was, you know, and uh, I think we did a pretty good job in Dreamscape. Oh yeah, I think it's a very underappreciated film. I think it's actually gained a, a bigger audience in the past maybe 10, 20 years. But you went from terrifying me personally in the Warriors to terrifying me again in Dreamscape and having nightmares mm-hmm. about you and waking up yeah. and screaming out <laughs> for my mom because oh, it's a man. Yeah. And then, you know, flash forward a decade later and you're in The Crow, 
uh, as T-Bird, and I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, he's terrifying me again, but I'm a, I'm a teenager, late teenager now, and so you're not <laughs> giving me nightmares. You're just still creeping me out. <laughs> well, uh, you know, so I, hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully you got the point of the story, though. Of which course. Was, you know, that good triumphs over evil and, you know, uh, the bad guys don't win, you know. That, that was the point. I was, you know, we put that uh, after the tragic passing of Brandon, you know, they had one close-up left and they still hadn't done the, the demise of T-Bird. I know you. I know you. I knew I knew you. I knew I knew you. But you ain't you. You can't be you. We put you through the window. There ain't no coming back. This is the really real world. There ain't no coming back. We killed your dad. There ain't no coming back. There ain't no coming back. There ain't no coming back. The best the devil stood. I felt how awful goodness is. I felt how awful goodness So they had one close-up of Brandon, which which is in the movie, where he's just silent, looking at me. And the rest of that is the body double of Chad Stelsky. Do you know that name? It's that man. The stunt and director now. He directed John Wick, and he directed uh, on and on uh, now, you know. Of course. Yeah, because which which he, obviously you were part of. Yeah, I did that one couple of scenes in, in the first John Wick, and, and, uh, and Stelsky, you know, was... Keanu Reeves' uh, body double uh, oh. in The Matrixes. And so oh. Keanu was the one who gave him the script and said, I want you guys to do this. Stelsky and his partner, David Leach, you know, who now they've, they've separated and become separate directors now. But mm -hmm. the first John Wick was the both of them. And uh, that was a treat. I've always really admired stunt people, you know, and... Uh, yeah. One one of my proudest moments was in Last Man Standing, where oh Doyle, where I get shot, yeah. and I, you know I wasn't wearing any pads, but they they put a pad on the ground, but I I took the fall for myself, where I where you know spoiler alert here for everybody, but you know where I get shot, you know, and uh, and uh, they gave me a stuntman's pin, a stuntman's association pin for oh, it, nice because you know, it was supposed to be my my body double, but I did it myself and, uh, and it worked out very good. You know, amazing. Did you refuse to have the stunt double do it? No, I just said, you know, I can do this, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was there, he still gets paid. Doesn't matter. You <laughs> right, know, right, right. And, uh, oh, there've been some great stunt guys, you know, great, you know, uh, Roy Farfeld's one guy who did it. And, and just most recently in Ray Donovan, the, the mm. finale to Ray Donovan, you know, uh, but he's done about four or five movies. And there's another guy in LA who was on 48 hours and stuff. You know, the guy who, when Eddie opens the car door in 48 hours and I go flying over it, that was a great stunt guy who did that, you know? Yeah. And, I was, uh, I was just going to say that you had stunt guys for that, but um, <laughs> thank goodness because <laughs> you might not be here today if <laughs> getting your ass kicked constantly, you know? Yeah. That was a big one. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, he keeps on ticking and, uh, you know the the thing in in uh, in Commando was uh, hanging on a big long line, you know, where Arnold was supposed to be holding me there, you know, and uh, but we shot it for so long, it was hours and hours, you know, but uh, oh, God. but it was it was it was cool. He was great. Arnold Arnold was very humble and and encouraging, and uh, we had a very good time. Kiss my ass. I can't hear you. I'll say a little louder than get fucked. Listen, loyalty is very touching. But it is not the most important thing in your life right now. But what is important is gravity. I have to remind you, Sally. This is my week on. You can't kill me, Matrix. You need me to find your daughter. Where is she? I don't know. But cook those. I'll take you where I'm supposed to meet her. But you won't. Why not? Because I already know. Do you remember, Sally, when I promised to kill you last? That's right, Major. You did. I lied.
What'd you do with Sully? I let him go. Was Arnold physically picking you up at any point? No. No. Okay. Well, yeah, he did pick me up when we first go over and then he holds me over the cliff. But after when he's holding me over the cliff, it's it's a it's a cable that you can see, you know. Thank God. It's a great story. Uh, <laughs> there was a wonderful stunt guy on that, Benny Dobbins, who was a uh, Western stunt guy. And he had a big, you know, the stunt guys back then, he had a big tooled leather, you know, it looked like Elvis's guitar strap or something. And they wear it on their, on their belt buckle and they put it down their leg. And they, you know, because they would play the American Indians in the Westerns in the fifties, you know, yeah. uh, and they'd get pulled off their horses when they were shot, you know, it was rough. I don't know how the hell they did that, but they, yeah. you know, he'd get yanked off his horse. He'd, they'd be riding along, you know, shooting bows and arrows and guns. And, and then they'd get shot and be yanked off their horse, you know, so it looked spontaneous, you know? And uh, so Benny let me wear his, his very own award-winning belt buckle to be held upside down <laughs> until, until my head almost exploded by oh, Arnold see. Schwarzenegger. You know, it, it was up there. I did have veins pulsing in my brain for a long time after. I was going to say. That's a long time say. to be upside down. But it was a cool, you know, going back to that division between art movies, you know, and, and how they slowly came to be yeah. revered, you know, and how everybody wants to be in, in action movies now, you know, all yeah. the top actors, you know, want to do them is because you can say so much about the world around us at the same time. Commando was so interesting because it was Reagan's America. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it showed, you know, Arnold was his, I call him his id monster at the time. It was sort of the, you know, I can do anything anywhere, you know, but I will reserve my power and be peaceful, mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, that's what the story of it was. And so to get all this information about it, you know, my character, Sully, was part of a ever-growing and now is quite dangerous private army. You know, yeah. the, the fascists have private armies now. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's the Wagner group in Russia or the, you know, Eric Prince's group here, you know, Blackwater, those kind of people, you know, they're around and being hired for money. And that's what Sully represented. You know, there was, you know, I got stuff, Freedom of Information Act. I got things about uh, counterinsurgency in South America at the time and gave it to Joel Silver and he used it for the uniforms for the people that played the soldiers that oh, I wow. did away with, you know. And uh, there were these manuals that you could get from the government about what was happening in South America at the time. And... Um, you know, so there's a lot. And I read a, a great book by the now gone Christopher Dickey. Uh, mm. uh, James Dickey wrote Deliverance. Yeah. He was the poet laureate of the United States under Jimmy Carter. And his son, Christopher Dickey, was a famed, he's gone now, sadly, but he started uh, The Daily Beast. But oh, before really? that, he was an award-winning journalist around, and he did a famous book called With the Contras. Uh, he went, you know, uh, and uh, embedded himself with the Contras and did this uh, uh, in Nicaragua and did a, a great book. And that was also part of the research for that, you know. And uh, so this is what I'm saying, even uh, in a cartoony kind of shoot em up like right. Commando. Yeah. You can you can be indicating and sort of talking about things that are really going on in the world that are that are important, you know, and this growing mercenary army thing is quite fascinating you know and that that is a is a i even used that again on a episode of a short-lived tv series called kidnapped you mm -hmm. know and it's talking about there's many corporations have their own private armies now you know there's many you know and uh this is a interesting and and growing subject and i worked on uh commando i saw a 60 minutes interview with two ex-military bodyguards for an investor, Robert Vesco, who was part of Nixon's entourage. And he mm. did a bunch of tax fraud and had to live in, in Cuba at the end of his life. So these two guys were talking about their life as guns for hire, you know, as mercenaries. And uh, 
And so it's, it, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you can indicate. You can sort of going back to your idea of, of being small character, but you can really put some interesting texture and story and atmosphere and support for the main story in, in the story by the work that you do, you know. No doubt. I saw you on Secession. My wife and I are watching the finale of Secession. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, holy shit, is that who I think that is? It was, it was, it was like, what, a 10-second scene, but you own that screen. I, so it was such a highlight. It was Because I love that show, but it was such a highlight to see you pop up and just magical. Well, the drag was interesting to be on the board of, uh, of that company, you know, whatever it is. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I love that episode because it's the title of a Pete Seeger sing, uh, song, which I love, Which Side Are You On? Or a song that he covered, you know. Yes. Great, oh, great union fighting. Fantastic uh, speaking with you, gentlemen. Uh, we'll do it again thank sometime. You. Thank, thank you so sure. much Pleasure. for your time. Best wishes. God bless. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Be Take well. Care. Thank you. what you done to me? Dying of happiness. Juggling love, love. Balance your life in the heavens above. See the city awake on a rainy morning Catch me yawning My mailman drop your load Watch me shake your head Philip T has done what he said And dying of happiness Juggling love, love Balance your life in the heavens above Listen, I just wanted to say goodbye and remind you that the good guys always win, even in the 80s. All right, thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to subscribe and give us a four... Is it five-star rating? <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. We really... Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. If you listen to us on Spotify, that's great, too. And you can find us on the Internet. <laughs> Don't forget to check out our website at $2LateFee.com and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at $2LateFeePodcast. We'll see you next time. We did it. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.